I think if you were to take a look at the computer science standards, um, you'd quickly recognize that they're bigger than just coding. They're bigger than just learning how to make program in language XYZ. Um, in fact, I connect it usually to probably the leading buzzword that an employer puts on a job posting. They're looking for critical thinkers, right? And I think computer science brings a set of tools and perspectives that let students become better critical thinkers. I'm Nikki Herda, and this is Bright, stories of hope and innovation in Michigan classrooms, a podcast where we celebrate our state's educators and explore the future of learning. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, ensuring the educational community for more than 70 years. Teachers and school employees visit mimic.com slash quote to see how much you can save. In today's episode of Bright, I chat with Kevin Santer, a lead instructor for Michigan Virtual's Career and Technical Education Online Courses. Kevin was honored as our 2019 Online Teacher of the Year and recently served on a statewide committee to help update Michigan's K-12 computer science standards. Kevin shares his journey in leaving a 20-year career in software development to become a teacher, uses the lens of computer science to explore what it means to think and ultimately to be human, and offers three ways to bring computer science concepts into the classroom. Well, Kevin, it's great to have you on the Bright Podcast today. Uh, thank you for joining me. Well, I'm glad to be here, Nikki. Thanks for thinking of me. Of course, yeah. Um, so we're starting off season three asking everybody the same question, which is what is the most interesting thing that you're doing in your classroom right now? Uh, you know, there's a few things to choose from. One of the things that I'm very excited about is in my um, computer science principles course. It's an AP course, but it's designed kind of more for the non-technical person. So rather than like deep into programming is to give them a broad view of the field. And something they're looking at right now is um, big data and big data analysis and the ethical concerns that might come with it. And it's just, it's really cool to see young people, you know, being articulate and arguing passionately over something that is really kind of geeky underneath the hood. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm liking seeing that a lot. Hmm. That sounds really interesting. So do you tend to attract students who might, you know, not have a ton of computer expertise or like coding experience? And do you get to see those lights turn on as they kind of realize the power? Yes, I was a little surprised. So I've taught, I think this is my third year teaching this course. We just kind of revamped it for this year. Um, and we get a mix. Like there's probably, I'm going to say 60% of students are like the ones you describe who are just kind of, you know, looking to broaden the horizons and, you know, getting those first exposures. And the others are often very deeply knowledgeable about it. You know, they know tons of coding, they know lots of these things, and they can bring lots of, you know, strong opinions and a lot of detailed information to the mix. So it's, it's, it's an unusual mix, I think, of the, of the inexperienced and the, and the very deeply experienced. Very cool. That sounds like a really awesome course. All right, we're going to change gears a little bit, and I'm going to have you tell me about a time when you just vividly remember falling in love with teaching. So that could be, you know, before you were in education, or it could have been something that happened while you were in education that reaffirmed that love for you. 
Yeah, and kind of to that latter point, uh, there are there are moments all the time if I take the take the time to recognize them, like what you described, where it kind of reinforces why you're in it and gives you that you know nudge to go on. There were a couple of early ones. Um, so I worked as a in software development for about twenty years before before coming to teaching, and I had the opportunity when working at a large automotive company. Um, to become involved in their Six Sigma program, which is about quality control and process management and stuff like that. And, um, you know, went through training and became an actual, actually an educator for the, for that program within the company. And that was really my first semi-formal taste of teaching. And it was really exciting, you know, to, to, to kind of recognize that I like doing this and to feel like, you know, I, I think I could be kind of good at this. Was so that was that was maybe my first like adult reflection on what it might be like to be a teacher. So it started with adults for you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, have a long history of educators in my family. I think you've probably heard me tell the story, um, but I counted up at one time, and it was like twenty-eight or something like that. If I count, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, you know, who are some form of teacher. So of course, I was just surrounded by going up and and heard the perspective, even as a little guy, of of what it's like to be a teacher. So I don't think there were too many like light bulb moments. You know, it was more like a, a slow immersion in it. And that that's the way it went for me. But yeah, it was as an adult where I think, you know, I, I first considered, you know, I really might give this a go. Did you start teaching online or did you start teaching face to face? No, I taught about ten years in the face to face classroom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did that, I guess, you know, once you got into the classroom, what did you realize that you that you loved about it? I hadn't anticipated um, really how deeply connected I would get to, to some students. You know, I, I, we always talk about relationship building and I didn't I'm not like an unempathetic, unempathetic robot, but um, I was really floored by, you know, what a difference that would make and even when students would articulate, you know, in whatever stumbling form a 16 or 17 year old might be able to, you know, the difference that I had made um, was really that that tangible, you know, right there in your face um, validation and feedback of what you're doing is, is very different from when you get in a large corporate world, right? No matter how positive your yearly review is, it's nothing like it's nothing like those honest moments or the goofy ones, right? I, you know, I got to be, you know, a dorky math teacher and basically tell mad, mad, you know, tell dad jokes and get kids to laugh at them. You know, I, you could get a kick out of it. So I think there were, there were unexpected rewards along with the expected ones. And, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, just how exasperating they can be at times, but that's part of it too. You know, you know, day in and day out that you had some impact, maybe not always good, right? <laughs> but you know that, that you did something that day. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's great. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about your journey into education? Cause you did have an interesting one. Um, you know, as an undergraduate, I studied computer science and worked in that industry for about 20 years. Um, got the chance to work for, it was kind of cool. Um, a number of different size companies, kind of from s quite small to medium to large. So I got a real good perspective on, you know, 
what that business looks like, worked in a lot of different application fields, you know, from finance to quality control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at some point, I, you know, started thinking, okay, well, is this really, you know, what I want to do for the rest of my life? Not that I was unhappy in any way, but, you know, the, there's only so many windows that open after a while. So I, you know, shared the experience about my chance to, to teach a little bit in that, in that role. Um, and just, you know, with the very brave and generous support of my wife and family, decided to chuck that career, go back to school. And I originally was a um, math teacher in the face-to-face -face classroom because they didn't offer any computer science courses and was lucky to be able to develop, you know, at least the starting of that curriculum. So by the, by by the time I'd left, um, we had, you know, a fledgling little computer science program going and... Um, when I when I reached the point where again looking for something new after about ten years, that I I was hoping to be able to kind of marry the two backgrounds in a certain way to be able to leverage more of my experience in software development, in understanding computer systems, and being able to um, you know the systems thinking training I had to be able to kind of merge that a little bit more or leverage that side a little bit more. Well, and I've heard, you know, really cool things about, you know, your contributions to as an online teacher, because you have that, you know, software background that you've helped, you know, build little Google extensions and different sorts of things to make online teaching easier. You know, I, I think that background helped me a lot going into the face-to-face -face classroom or going into teaching in the first place. Um, rather than facing what I think I hear a lot of young instructors um, express where, you know, they're like, oh, I wanted to teach him because I really wanted to, but I've always wondered, should I have, you know, been a writer? Should I have gone into, and I was lucky enough to have really two full careers beforehand and walk into this, you know, eyes wide open, head held up and be able to bring all that experience. So I think, I think I was able to bring a lot of credibility when I talked about real world examples, I was able to to know that I was doing what I chose to do, you know, and both those things together were a big leg up for me as a, as a beginning teacher. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I really like that story. Thank you. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about three ways to bring computer science concepts into your classroom. I'm wondering if first we can pause to unpack the why a little bit. So I know that you've done a lot of work at the state level, um, to form the computer science standards. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about this work and why it's so important, um, and this is indicated in those state standards, that um, all students have exposure to some fundamental computer science concepts. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a really cool opportunity to be involved in working on those state standards, um, not just because it's valuable work and I got to meet interesting people, but to help me to force me to articulate to myself what I thought was important. You know, are all my pearls of wisdom in the final standards? Of course not, but you know, it was a time to, to reflect a little bit. Um, first, I'm gonna take, I think, kind of the lazy answer to bring, to bring computer science concepts into your classroom. I'm gonna argue that they're there already, right? And that it's more about recognizing them, articulating them, and reinforcing them. Right. Um, we don't think about, you know, well, how am I going to bring reading into my classroom? I mean, we do, but 
we know it's there, right? Even in a math classroom, we know reading's already there. It's a matter of bringing a focus to it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think it isn't a stretch to say that the same thing's going on for computer science. Um, of course, there's all the hard technical skills, you know, every list of top jobs for the next X years is going to list computer programming and stuff like that. But by no means is every kid going to go into that. I heaven forbid they would. That just seems, that just seems brutal and boring. Um, I think if you were to take a look at the computer science standards, um, you'd quickly recognize that they're bigger than just coding. They're bigger than just learning how to make program in language XYZ. Um, in fact, I connect it usually to probably the leading buzzword that an employer puts on a job posting. They're looking for critical thinkers, right? And I think computer science brings a set of tools and perspectives that let students become better critical thinkers. Um, so there, that's, that's my short answer to that. It's, it's a sore point for me, the, the, the perspective that why do we need to add yet another thing? And I know you're not implying that, but, um, so forgive me if I babble a little bit about that. <laughs> no, I, um, in this, I like to ask questions that make people just a tiny bit peeved because that's where you get the, um, that's where you get the passionate and interesting answers. So that was, that was spot on. So thank you. You were talking about how, you know, every job description nowadays talks about critical thinking. It's something that we hear about whenever um, schools are putting out their, you know, portrait of a graduate or whatever it might be. It's those critical thinking skills. And I was just wondering, you know, at, as somebody who might not have a deep understanding of what these computer science concepts are that we're talking about, could you just expand on that a little bit about how these things facilitate critical thinking? Yeah. So, um... One of the things that's been uh, put forward in computer science education thinking in the past 10, 15 years is this idea of computational thinking. So in addition to the like the more formal computer science theory and the the hard techy, you know, coding skills. There's this other, yeah, I don't know if you can see my hands right now, but I'm making a little Venn diagram with them to show, to show the overlap. And there's this other region that is more broader computational thinking. And it's described many different ways with varying levels of academic rigor. Um, the four pieces that I like to hold on to, um, the four skills or approaches, the first one is called decomposition or functional decomposition, and it's divide and conquer. Right, the the ability to look at a large problem and break it down into smaller pieces, to look at a system to break it into its component pieces. The next is pattern recognition. You know, being able to identify is this really a pattern? You know what? I think this has happened again and again. I wonder if I wonder if we're looking at a pattern. The idea of abstraction, to say, well, you know, it looks like this happens when I do that. And when I do it again over here, it happens again. Is there an underlying principle that I can abstract? You know, what is it that a terrier and a poodle and a shepherd have in common that make them a dog, right? And this is a, a big part of um, something that kind of happened organically in the development of programming that we've recognized is kind of a philosophical underpinning. And the final one is the idea of algorithms, which I think most people are exposed to at this point. The idea that you communicate a process, the steps for a process in crisp, clear-cut terms, you know, that can be 
executed and reproduced by a computer or another person or something like that. So I think those, um, those four skills when combined, especially I think the interplay between abstracting and decomposition, the kind of forest and trees back and forth that's necessary for deep understanding, I think to me go a long way towards defining what critical thinking is. I just had a little epiphany over here. And, well, good, you know, see ya. <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, it's one that you've probably already had, but since I'm, you know, hadn't thought about these concepts in this way before, I was like, wow. If, okay, so this is based on a very, a pretty limited understanding of how computers function, but um, the whole idea of computers, right, is teaching, you're teaching a machine how to think, sort of, right, especially with like AI and whatnot. So it does kind of make sense that in order to create a computer, you'd have to figure out what it is to actually, you know, think critically. And so if humans can take those concepts and replicate them, they're also improving their own thinking. So I was like, oh my gosh, there are machines that think. That's so yeah, cool. I think absolutely. And, you know, the, the deeper philosophical waters, what does it mean to think? You know, when do, how will we know when a computer is thinking? And that leads to, you know, not just this abstract sci-fi topic, but what does it mean for humans to think? You know, what's, what's going on with, various psychological processes. What happens to someone when they're stricken with Alzheimer's and they slowly lose, you know, what makes them them? You know, there's, there's, there's deep waters that you can quickly connect to. And it, it it's a lens like so many others. Yeah. And if uh, this is maybe a separate discipline, but uh, if computers can think in some ways better than we can, what is it that makes us different or what, what is it that makes us human? So yeah, yep. there's some, there's, there's some a deep heart there. philosophical questions. Yeah. So one of the focuses of our conversation today is going to be about, you know, bringing computer science concepts into your classroom. And so that to me, you know, begs the question, why is it that computer science should be cross-disciplinary? Um, what, what does that bring to it? Yeah, and I, I think I can play the a similar trick to what I did with the last question and, and say that it already is cross-disciplinary, right? Um, there is a small corner of computer science that is strictly about computer science and the theory of computer science, right? That is, there is work that goes on there. But if you think about it, what do we use computers for? You know, we use them for research. We use them, we use them in the hard sciences for you know analysis. We use them in finance, at commerce. We use them in music. We use them in in film. You know, there it's it's a set of tools already directed towards other disciplines, right? So I think in that sense, it is already cross disciplinary. I'm Nikki Herda, and you're listening to Bright Stories of Hope and Innovation in Michigan Classrooms. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, ensuring the educational community for more than 70 years. Teachers and school employees visit mimic.com slash quote to see how much you can save. Today, I'm chatting with Kevin Santer, a lead instructor for Michigan Virtual's career and technical education online courses, who left a 20-year career in software development to become a teacher. Up next, we dive into Kevin's top three suggestions for bringing computer science concepts into the classroom. I think it's time for us to dig in to our your top three tips for bringing computer science concepts into the classroom. So can you kick us off with number one? 
Absolutely, I can. The first one, um, I think, is the idea of debugging. Um, I've run across it in a lot of literature since since the time this happened to me. But actually, as a face-to-face -face math instructor, I accidentally one day, you know, a student or a couple of students were working on a problem on board, and you could see they'd done it wrong. And I said, well, you know, I think we're on the track here. Let's, we're on the right track here. Let's see if we can debug this. And I didn't even really think about it. It was just, you know, years of being a programmer. That's just a, a common verb I have in my head. And one of them especially kind of looked at me like, you know, side-eyed. Um, but we got to the point and, then, and moved on. But it made me recognize, and then I consciously started using it, this idea of looking at problems as something to be debugged rather than the strict wrong right. You know, it was most painfully aware in the math classroom. You got the wrong answer. Done. All right? When, of course, we never want that, right? It's like, well, why did you get the wrong answer? And I think there's not just a liberating perspective there for a student, but um, I think there are some pragmatic avenues that open up with that perspective. Um, you know, being able to dissect a problem, that decomposition idea, break it down. Well, it looks good up to here. It looks good up to here. Oh, you know, this is where it goes wrong. This is where we need to focus our efforts. I mean, that's important. You know, what is wrong with, with like my internal representation of this, that, that I went awry here? I, mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of power there. You know, we talk about in students, you know, constructing models in their head and representations and where they can fall short. Being able to know then when you actually have successfully debugged it, um, I'll, you know, talk, talk with my fellow math teachers about, you know, students who will do a story problem about calculating a tip at dinner, and they'll come up with, you know, 28 cents or $3,512. You <laughs> and I both immediately say, gosh, I think there might be something wrong with that. But we <laughs> yeah. have to have a lot of context, right? This is, the, you know, these students had never been to a restaurant where they had to pay, certainly. Some of them may have never been to a restaurant where there was tipping involved, right? So the the idea of how do I know when I get the right answer? How do I convince other people? I mean, I think those kinds of things really open up um, into social studies and English, the idea of convincing arguments and, you know, um, being able to pose a counter argument and, you know, skepticism and so forth. Um, and I think I alluded to this uh, before. Um, when you do debugging, you often have to move back and forth between scales. You have to move between the forest and the trees. You know, you have to look at, oh, did I do, you know, um, four sentences in this introductory paragraph versus does this topic sentence even make sense to me, right? You know, there, and I think students, grown-ups, aren't often adept at that, that kind of systems thinking of being able to hold the large picture in their mind at the same time as they're diving into the details. And I think those are all those are all part of a debugging mindset, and especially when you frame it as you know why doesn't it work yet? Um, I think there's I think there's a lot of avenues. I, I find it really fascinating. So um, I spoke with someone last season, um, Dr. Amin Yadav. Have you met him or heard of him before? Okay, um, and so he did talk a bit about debugging and, uh, and you know, actually he's a he's a noted person on on. Computational thinking. Oh, so yes, yes. I'm, I'm grateful you see the connections. Yes, yes. Um, 
And we talked a bit about, you know, how in the math classroom specifically, you know, using that as an example um, and how that led to growth mindsets for students, right, in math classrooms. But I find it really interesting, the examples that you're telling me about, you know, the English classroom, because that's kind of what I was just wondering, too, is like, you know, oh, what would that look like in the English classroom? But I like the example that you gave, uh, you know, of like with the topic sentence, like, oh, the topic sentence isn't working. What exactly is going on? And then like pulling back into that big picture and then zooming back in. I think that's a really neat way to think about it. You know, I think one of the places it shows up is in like peer reviewing stuff. Mm-hmm. In in the coding world, we talk about uh, pair programming, partner programming. You know, one guy's at the keyboard and, you know, his partner is standing over his shoulder, um, you know, and they take turns back and forth. And so there's this give and take of what they're focusing on, who is driving at that time. And I think the same kinds of things play out in in the, the peer review papers and um, even in a well-run discussion, right? there, If, if there's a, a good Socratic guider from the outside, I think you can pull those things off. You know, and I think you can... You can pick apart at problems and look at, you know, large and small scales. That makes sense. Um, all right. What, uh, so that was number one. We've got, uh, you know, bringing in the concept of debugging. Um, what have you got for us for your second strategy? Rules, w- rules, colon, where they come from and when to break them. So spoke about... Uh, the idea of pattern recognition, of seeing when something is recurring and, you know, abstracting that out and saying, you know what, this, this, I'm going to call this a hypothesis. I'm going to go so far as to call it a theory, right? So clearly we're already connected to the scientific method. Um, But this happens, I'll use an English example. You're looking at at meter, um, meter and rhythm in poetry, right? And you can think about from as simple as a haiku up to a limerick, you know, through um, iambic pentameter. You know, there's there's these kind of rigid structures that we discovered people using. Or, you know, I'm not I'm not enough of an expert to know where the chicken and egg is here. Um, but at some point, people started recognizing, you know, these poems all have this in common. You know, what's going on with these? And so people started consciously using this as a set of rules, right? They recognized the pattern, they imitated it. And then, of course, the next stages are, well, what else can we do with that? What if I vary this by doing that? What if I, what if I all of a sudden have a poem that doesn't have words that rhyme? You know, you can blow a three, uh, third grader's mind with that. Um, and I think this is something that the computer science just has done since its inception. Right. It's like you described tackling something as grandiose as, you know, what is human intelligence? Well, we're going to make our best stabs at modeling it, at describing the rules, if you will, the algorithms that that we use. And then we're going to see where the boundaries of that are. Um, What circumstances does it work in? What circumstances doesn't it work in? What are the limits of the rules? How much do they depend on the context they're in? are we recognizing rules that were inherently there or are we imposing some construct on there? Right. And it's easy to go from there again to, you know, more philosophical ideas like the rule of law and human nature and, you know, fill your, fill in the blank with, um, you know, your, your thorny political 
social issue. I guess what I'm trying to do is connect the dots back to the critical thinker idea that this awareness of and ability to recognize these patterns, to abstract and articulate these rules, to formulate and communicate algorithms, but also to be very aware of their limitations, right? Uh, my wife tells a story. She works in uh, nursing informatics. Um, she worked many years as, as um, a hospital nurse in, in intensive care units and stuff like that. But anyway, um, computerized prescription delivery system, right? The computer told the, told the nurse that she should be giving 10 milligrams of this drug. Um, well, it turns out that the, the pills come in like five microgram doses. So 10 milligrams, I may be exaggerating the story, is like 40 pills or something like that. And fortunately, someone stepped in, but you know, the, the, the poor person went so far as to like to dispense the 40 pills and was like taking them to the patient before someone stepped in. And I, to me, it's, it's a classic example of, well, the computer told me to, which is funny and horrific, but it's something that I think happens all the time. You know, pick, like I said, picture social issue. Well, you know, my parents always told me this. My society always told me this. Or my English teacher always told me I should, you know, have five paragraphs in a persuasive essay. You know, why wouldn't I do six? So I don't want to overblow uh overblow that, but I think um, the idea of formal systems, of identifying rules and algorithms and and playing around with them, you know, knowing when you have to when you have to make the changes, when you have to adapt them. So I'm I'm very intrigued by what, what you're saying here. And I guess one question that I have is so if I think about like what this looks like in practice, I'm I'm asking myself, and I can imagine you like having these conversations with students, and I get the feeling maybe you do, but I could be wrong about that. You know, on my best day, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I could see the power of actually just talking like this with students, you know, and getting them to think about what are rules and what are what does it mean to solve problems and maybe using these computer science concepts as a framework and a way to say, oh, well, this is how it works in computing and this is how we teach a computer how to do this thing, you know, but just even getting kind of, it's kind of pulls you out of your like, you know, just default way of thinking and it just pulls you back and makes you kind of stand above it and look down and be like, yeah, what are, you know, why do I listen to the computer? Why do, where did this come from? Where, what, what makes a rule? What makes, you know, it, it's, it's more philosophical and abstract than I would have thought. You know, when I think of, when I was thinking of this interview even, I was thinking, you know, like, I don't know, more, like you said, more like Yeah, robotic. like I'm going to use a, I'm gonna use a spreadsheet to look at economic data, right? And those are fabulous ideas. And of course, students should be doing that. They shouldn't, you know. But I, I, I do think there's, you know, an underlying depth. And that's where I'm attracted, right? That's the, I love having frameworks to hang things on. Um, one of the reasons that I was not, probably the most rewarding student in high school was that I passively rebelled when I didn't think something made sense, right? Or when, when someone couldn't explain to me, you know, why this mattered to me. And so, you know, I've probably done a bit of maturing since then, but I think that underlying, I really want to know 
what makes this hang together um, is is a big part of where I look. And I think it doesn't even have to get super um, philosophical. I think about, say you're looking at, oh, I don't know, the fall of the Roman Empire, right? And every, you know, ninth grade textbook is going to give you the six reasons why the Roman Empire fell. Well, what if you looked at it instead as giving the, what if you gave the students instead the chance to look at, you know, possible candidate factors or data that might lead them to make these conclusions, let them discover that pattern themselves, argue for or against it, right? Let them be part of the, the creative part of, of that, of that discipline, social studies, rather than just, you know, gobbling up what someone else already made, right? I think, I think that shift of of letting students discover it, I, I think most every teacher is going to say, yeah, that's a good thing in my discipline, right? Instead of telling them the rules of what makes a sonnet, you know, let them discover that, right? Let them argue for it. Let them look at ones that kind of bend the rules, you know, and say, well, is it still a sonnet or not? And I think... I think there's there's a lot of richness there and and certainly more rewarding activities. I taught like a first year writing class uh in you know when I was getting my masters and one of my favorite like <laughs> class periods that we had is one time we debated whether or not emojis were could be considered punctuation. And students came out of the woodwork on that one, <laughs> you know, once you start, what is punctuation? Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to contend that is like a, a classic computer science um, argument, right? And in fact, it could really have, um, you know, like software design implications. You know, when you think about the way symbols and software encoded on the computer, right, there's organizations, international organizations behind the scenes that prove that the Unicode for the smiley face emoji is zero, zero, you know, whatever those, and it should it be in the same category as a punctuation. Those, those are real arguments that actually can really matter. And so getting a chance to play around with that approach in a lower stake setting yeah, you know, that's that's good stuff. Let's let's hear it. Your your third strategy. This one I um is a bit of a cheat because I'm not entirely sure if it's a separate if it's a fully distinct one, but I'm gonna ta- um refer to the idea of algorithms, right? So again, a, an algorithm in computer science can be defined variously, but it's a set of instructions, right, that are clear enough that whatever machine or person is going to execute them, they can do it without ambiguity. Right? It could be, um, you know, get out the two pieces of bread, get out the knife, get out the peanut butter, get out the jam. Right? It can include conditions. If you don't like jam, then put the jam back. Um, you could say you can have what we call iteration. Um, while the driveway isn't free of snow, keep shoveling. Right? So those simple building blocks are used to describe virtually everything that goes on a computer, right? At one level or another. Um, we take advantage of that abstraction I measured, mentioned before so that we don't have to perpetually, you know, dig down to that lowest level of detail. Now, once I tell you how to shovel the sidewalk, you probably know how to shovel the driveway, right? And with a few modifications, I can tell you that. So, um, algorithms. Um, as early as preschool, kids are taught procedures, classroom processes and routines, right? How to line up for recess, 
how to um, get ready for snack time, how to, you know, and that goes on through, um, you know, middle school and on up to high school, really through college, right? There's the, the process that you go through for signing up for classes. There's the process you go through for ordering your cap and gown. Um, they're there everywhere. And I think one thing I propose is to recognize them and label them as algorithms from early on. So that you can then look at things like debugging. You know what? Whenever we go get ready to go out to recess, we run into this problem. Let's look at our algorithm and see if we can debug that. And I think that's a, that's a valid framework. Um, I think it's tied closely to an ability to communicate, you know, both verbally and in written terms, right? Your, your goal as an essayist is to make your point cleanly, simply, and elegantly without ambiguity. Right. I mean, if you perhaps if you're a fiction writer, you're looking for ambiguity, but right. It's a when an employer talks about good communication skills, it's often this kind of thing. Can you describe your process? Right. Um, act the act of describing your process. Coders find early on walking someone else through their code, you know, oh, you know what? That doesn't do what I thought it did. That's where the problem is, right? And I think the same thing happens in debugging an essay, in looking at a math problem with a partner or, you know, whoever, that um, forcing you to articulate in a step-by-step manner to slow down, break it down, and look at it is is a really important skill. So I think um, using the language and using that framework from early on is only a good thing. Well, before we get going, there's two quick questions I want to ask you. The first one is, can you tell me about a student who touched your heart and changed the way you teach? Yeah, of course there have been many. Um, One, so about midway through my face-to-face career, I was uh, teaching AP Calc. It's first hour in the morning, which is just tough for high school juniors and seniors and had some tardy problems. And one, one student in particular, man, just day after day, you know, he'd drift in five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes late. And, um, wasn't always doing great on keeping up on work. And, um, so I think one day I must've let, like, let my facial expressions just kind of get away from me. And another student in the class who I happened to actually know a little bit better, I'd had her in an earlier year, she stopped after class. She said, uh, Mr. Sarah, you may want to just talk to him to see about what's going on. I, I won't use his name, but you may just want to just just talk to him, you know, see if you can get him to share what's going on. Turns out he's um, one of two kids. He has a younger brother who is like eight. Um, his dad um, had an opioid addiction. So most every night he was doing something to take care of his dad and then uh, making sure to, you know, get his, his brother ready for school and walk him to school because he lived, you know, a bad neighborhood away from the elementary school where his son could, where his brother could be dropped off early. And, of course, he didn't share this with me immediately. Um, you know, and, of course, I was, I, I was moved and was like, oh, God, you know, what can I do? And he said, 
do you think I could just call you sometimes? You know, he says, I really want, I don't know if I could pass this class, but I just really want to learn as much as I can. And I, I'm like, at this point, I'm, I'm nearly in tears. <laughs> and um, so when you asked early on about, you know, the experience of transitioning or, you know, what made me be a teacher or something like that, I mean, that moment is was just huge for me. And I don't know if that it made me, you know, more open and receptive to every tardy student afterwards. But it was, it was a great reminder that there are so many stories out there, and and you can't always know them. And if you're lucky, maybe you can get them to share a little bit. Um, yeah, and just a reminder that even if it's not, you know, even on that scale, that's obviously a pretty significant disruption and in a student's life but you know everybody has a story and it you can never remember that enough times I feel you know you have to go keep circling back to it and circling back to it and remind yourself you know yeah I mean and even just like selfishly it's kind of horrifying like what what if I just been a jerk one day and really lit into him in front of you know the rest of the class he would have just sat there and taken it because like in in his world just wasn't that big a deal, you know, but I would have just felt so small. All right. And can you tell me about a teacher who had an impact in your life? You know, I told you I come from a huge family. So in, in one sense, I've had a million teachers have, it, have an impact on me. Um, one that I thought of was uh, a high school math teacher I had long before I even thought about this, Mr. Cotner. Um, and to start with, he was like, he was super cool. I mean, he was quiet about it. You know, he wasn't, you know, flashy or anything, but like, you know, he just had a presence. He didn't get flapped by kids. Um, he could talk real easily with you. Um, but what I learned only kind of in retrospect, um, you know, why he stuck in my head was he was the first teacher where I was really aware of how they planned out the moves they would make, how, you know, seemingly spontaneous questions that he would put in, um, you know, as a follow-up, or the way he built an explanation showing, demonstrating how to understand something for two, from two or three different directions. I mean, I've, for the first time, I really got the sense of, like, the craft that went into it. And I don't, I didn't, you know, couldn't articulate that as a 14-year-old, but looking back, I'm like, you know, he really had game. I mean, he was really good at um, showing the reasons underneath something and talking about um, multiple ways to get to the same right answer. Just a lot more flexibility and and, and freedom and, and fluidity than, than I certainly experienced. You know, this is a long time ago in education where a math class would have been taught, for the most part, straight out of the book. This is the example. We'll do it on the overhead projector together. Then, you know, you'll try one on your own. Then you'll do the homework. You know, whereas Mr. Cotner was, you know, was he would build a model or he would have, you know, a chalkboard explanation. He would have other avenues into understanding things. And it was really, um, it was really eye-opening to me in terms of technique. But the overriding thing underneath it was that, was that he was cool. He was, he, you could relate to him. You could talk to him. He knew you, right? Um, I wouldn't ask a question because I was too cool to ask a question, but he would know, you know, if maybe I was struggling with something and would circle by my desk and check in on me. 
right? Just just had a lot of stuff going on. Do you think consciously or unconsciously that had an impact on the way that you teach? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think I think um, both, right? I think there there are times I, you know I can think of a couple of his you know uh, explanations, you know for you know, what makes a rhombus different from a square or something like that. I can picture him up at the front of the classroom doing that. So I have some of those conscious memories. But I I suspect um, that the seemingly effortless way he made connections with students and built relationships um, is something that's influenced me. I, I can't claim his skill, but I, I it's something to aspire to. <laughs> you know, I recall... When you were the teacher of the year, the online teacher of the year in uh, 2019, I want to say. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember reading a couple, you know, just little tidbits that came from whoever nominated you uh, and hearing stories about you relating to students. And that echoed kind of the one that you just had said before about a student really opening up to you. So I think you probably got some Mr. Mr. Kotner. Is it Mr. Kotner? <laughs> it was Mr. Some Kottner. Mr. Kotner yep. vibes going on too. So. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I think we opened, you know, with, uh, with the rewarding moments or almost opened with it. Um, and it is what keeps you going, right? That, 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 that you do get hints of that, 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 it, that it mattered and that it made a difference. And, you know, there's always that hope out there. You know, and there's nothing better than that feeling. Without a doubt, it's challenging work to get students to think deeply about their own thought processes and use concepts from the world of computing to better understand both the technology at their fingertips and their own minds. But with leaders like Kevin forging our path forward, if there's one thing we're certain of, it's that the future is bright. You know someone who's an inspiring Michigan educator who should be featured on our show? Send us an email at bright at michiganvirtual.org to let us know who they are and why we should interview them. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bright stories of hope and innovation in Michigan classrooms. This podcast is produced by Kirby Gaylord, is hosted by me, Nikki Herda, and is shaped by many of our passionate and talented colleagues. Big thanks to Cassie Harris, Krista Green, and Brandon Batista for their contributions to this episode. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, ensuring the educational community for more than 70 years teachers and school employees, visit mimic.com slash quote to see how much you can save. The Bright Podcast is made possible by Michigan Virtual, a nonprofit organization that's leading and collaborating to build learning environments for tomorrow. Education is changing faster than ever. Discover new models and resources to move learning forward at your school at michiganvirtual.org.